as we prepare to hear from God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us by his spirit. Let us pray. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your word so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand has planted. Give us life and we will call upon your name and let your face shine on us in Christ so that we may be saved. Open your word to us now, we ask, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Using one of our pew Bibles, on many of those, you'll find that on page 715 between the books of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. If you're visiting with us this evening, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of the Song of Solomon, and we've come to chapter 3, and we want to read the first five verses together uh, this evening and think about what the Spirit has to say to the church. So the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, beginning a reading at verse 1 and reading through verse 5, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. On my bed by night I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchman found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, As we've been considering this wonderful song that the Holy Spirit inspired to teach God's people, important truths about how to love, Uh, We've been given a lot of insights into important truths about love and about marriage and about intimacy. Um, And some of those pictures have been somewhat difficult to understand. Um, Maybe there have been times where I've read through it and then you've thought, okay, I don't know what that means. I guess we'll find out. Um, This one is a lot easier to put together. I think the plain meaning of it is much more straightforward for us. Um, But it is helpful for us in, in learning, again, more truths about wisdom for how to love, because as we are given a window into this bride-to-be's evening meditations and what is going through her mind at night, it's a reminder to us that true love, as the Bible defines it, comes with both ecstasies and agonies, with both delights and difficulties. Uh, The only place that romantic love and relationships come together without any difficulty and without any trouble is in the movies or in fiction. Uh, It's fiction for a reason. Um, You get to see two hours of the good stuff um, and not much of the bad, Um, not much of the difficult, not much of the hard work. Um, I often think, you know, romantic comedy or something, you know, it ends with them finally getting married or whatever, and then you never see what happens after that. Um, You don't get sort of the mundane life and the simple annoying things that people do. Um, I remember once going through premarital counseling and trying to encourage a couple by saying, you know, there are things in marriage that will start fights that are little things that really 
they don't seem like that much, like not getting your clothes into the hamper. Then this married couple came a few months later, and the husband said, you were right, I've gotten in trouble for not getting my clothes in the hamper. Um, you know, it's difficult to relate to one another. It doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're talking about. Married people know this. Uh, even people who aren't married know this. Um, but we know that family, family life can be difficult. Even if we're not married, we know how families that we love, it's difficult to relate to one another. Um, and it's true of our family households. It's true of our household of faith. When we come together as a church and try to live together as sinners, we, we love one another, we we pray for one another, we care about one another, but we know that we are not always easy to live with. Um, and there are going to be difficulties that come to this relationship as well. And it's true that the more intimate human relationships are, the more close they are, the more struggles and difficulties can come with them. Um, it doesn't mean that the point of this message is that love stinks or that love is not worth it, um, but the Bible is, is giving us advice for real love. Um, a wisdom for real love, for how to live realistically with the difficulties as well as the delights of love, um, and points those out. Um, and we need that for the time in which we live particularly, uh, to know that love is costly, love is difficult. It involves not just the good parts of life, but there are going to be difficult things that need working through. Um, last time we pointed out, didn't we, how the, our culture is surrounded by no no desire for any kind of patience when it comes to relationships, no sense of delayed gratification, whatever you want, you can go and get now. And that also kind of translates to how we think about things. If it's not working for you, if it's not pragmatically giving you what you think you need in the moment, then you simply discard it. Uh, you don't need to work through it. You don't need to figure it out. You just can, can separate and go your way and find something else that does work for you. Um, and we pointed out that's not how the Bible contemplates real love, as something just to be hooked into and unhooked from at your own convenience, but to think seriously about the difficulties of love, that they have to be faced just as the delights of love are to be embraced. That's all part of it. It's all included. Um, I remember when I was studying for this sermon, uh, despite appearances to the contrary, that does happen. Um, I came across a, a passage in C.S. Lewis's Four Loves uh, where he talked about that reluctance to pay, costly, to pay costs when it comes to love, uh, the, the desire to avoid things that might hurt you. And it came up in his mind because he was reading a passage of Augustine's Confessions where he was talking about the death of a friend. Augustine is talking about the death of a friend. And C.S. Lewis writes, Augustine draws a moral. He says, this is what comes of giving one's heart to anything but God. All human beings pass away. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved Christ who will never pass away. C.S. Lewis says that's Augustine's argument. And then he says what he thinks of that argument. He says, of course, this is excellent sense. Don't put your goods in a leaky vessel. Don't spend too much on a house you may be turned out of. There is no man alive who responds more naturally than I, Lewis says, to such canny maxims. I am a safety-first creature. 
Of all arguments against love, none makes so strong an appeal to my nature as, careful, this might lead you to suffering. To my nature, to my temperament, yes. Not to my conscience. When I respond to that appeal, I seem to myself to be a thousand miles away from Christ. If I am sure of anything, I am sure that his teaching was never meant to confirm my congenital preference for safe investments and limited liabilities. I doubt whether there is anything in me that pleases him less. There is no escape along the lines St. Augustine suggests, nor along any other lines. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. Christ did not teach and suffer that we might become, even in the natural loves, more careful of our own happiness. If a man is not uncalculating towards the earthly beloveds whom he has seen, he is none the more likely to be so towards God whom he has not seen. We shall draw nearer to God not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken... And if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it. That's a long quote, I know. Um, But I think he's exactly right. Um, Love makes you vulnerable. right? Opening your heart to anything hurts you. I think he even brings up, you know, even if you love a pet, that can make you vulnerable if something happens to that pet. Um, Loving anything makes you vulnerable, but the alternative is just to lock up your heart so much you don't love anything um, and to really cut yourself off from anything that resembles love. It's, It's that simple and profound message that love is costly. And just because something is costly does not mean it's not worth it. When Jesus was calling people to follow him, he said, you better count the cost. Uh, There's a cost that comes with following the Lord. Think of what our Lord said in Luke 14, 27 to 33. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. 
Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, There's a cost to following the Lord. And that's not to say at all that it's not worth the cost. But it's a cost that must be counted. It's a cost that must be understood. And that's really what the lesson we're learning from this passage this evening, that love is costly, that our natural loves will cost something. We have to understand the cost. And as we'll see, that's what makes the bride here, the bride-to-be here, such a hero, not just in the Song of Songs generally, uh, but in this passage in particular, because she's willing to face love's difficulties head on. Um, And the promise of the future delights of marriage. She's willing to do the things to seek them and to secure them. And that's really what we see in this, in this passage. She's held up to us as someone who is willing to face the difficult costs of love and pay them. And so how do we see that setting out in this passage? Uh, well, first, there's sort of a fantastic setting that comes to us uh, in this passage. Uh, secondly, there's a frustrating search that goes on. And finally, there's a final statement on love that we do well to pay attention to on the difficulties and the delights of love. So we want to think about a fantastic setting, a frustrating search, and a final statement. So there's a fantastic setting to this story. I said already, unlike a lot of the other parts of this song, this is one that isn't filled with imagery that's so hard for us to interpret. Uh, This maybe is a simpler passage to understand the plain meaning of. Um, The bride-to-be is in bed at night thinking about things, right? The way we do at night, lying in bed thinking about things. And and in, in in the context of this passage, it's an interesting time to be thinking about these things. She's just had this wonderful experience of this glorious spring that's saying love is in the air and this beautiful day that she's been meditating on. And that day has now come to an end and she's in her, in her bed by herself at night thinking about these things. So that day has kind of passed. She's now here at midnight, and these things are, are going through her mind, this solitary night where she's facing these things. And we're told that in her bed she begins this diligent search. Um, she begins this diligent search in her mind uh, for her beloved. And the search begins in her bed, and then she goes out into the city and she inquires of the watchman where he is and finally she finds her beloved, takes hold of him, brings her home to the family home and to the marital bed where they are together at last. I think the overall structure of this is pretty clear. Um, The great question of how to interpret this passage comes with asking the question, is this really happening or is this happening in a dream? Is she merely thinking about these things, or is this really happening? Is she, does she really get up out of bed and go out into the city and start looking? So maybe in this passage, the details aren't so complicated, but the setting is a little more difficult to understand. Is this really happening, or is this some kind of dream? And I think the people are right who see a kind of dream-like quality in everything, she ha- everything that happens here. Um, and we can think of it maybe as a kind of of fantasy or, or the way we sometimes do at night when we're drifting off to sleep and 
our thoughts that we're having drift into dreams. Have you ever had that where you kind of are thinking about something and it seems to drift into the dreams you're having and then maybe you wake up and you're still kind of thinking about those things and you're sort of drifting in and out and it's hard to kind of identify exactly when was that me asleep dreaming and when was that me awake thinking about it. And I think there's something to that quality of her thoughts uh, in this case, particularly because she does a lot of things in this passage that probably would not be something that she would um, actually go out and do. Wandering out into the street in the middle of night by yourself um, is not something that anyone normally does. Um, and so I think that's what adds a kind of dreamlike quality to this. And I think maybe that's how to best think of this passage. She's on the brink of sleep. Her waking hopes are mingling with her dreams and her desires and thinking about the search for her husband. Um, and this seems to be something of a recurring theme for her. Uh, the way this passage is told, this is something that she does by night. Um, the, the, it's plural in Hebrew. That's something she does, if we wanted to translate it really woodenly, she does by nights. Um, and I think, you know, less woodenly, it would sort of be night after night this is happening, where she's going through these thoughts in her mind. Um, and she's going through these things, and she's thinking about these things, and they're kind of a recurring theme. This is the same kind of way we read in Psalm 134.1, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Right? Those are the servants who stand night after night in the house of the Lord. And I think we're being told this is kind of what she's, this is a recurring dream. She's thinking about these things night after night. She's doing these things night after night. Um, where she's in her mind thinking about her beloved being gone and going out to find him and searching for him. Um, and so this is kind of the fantastic setting of everything that she says. And she engages over and over again in this sort of frustrating search. Um, it's a frustrating search that she's engaged in. Um, maybe you've had a kind of recurring dream. I won't, we won't do any dream therapy later tonight. I won't ask you about your dreams. Um, but maybe you've had that before, a kind of recurring dream that you're having over and over again. Um, or in your dream, you're looking for something that you can't find. Have you ever had that dream? Um, ever since I've become a pastor, I have variations on that theme. It's Sunday, and I can't find my sermon or I can't find my suit, or I don't know where I'm supposed to go. It's always something that's keeping me from, and the clock is ticking, and it's going to be too late. I've, I have had every version of that dream, something you can't find, right? And that's, that's what she seems to be having over and over again, trouble finding her, her spouse, finding her husband. And there's this pattern that is repeated here of seeking, loving, and not finding, and over and over again, seeking, loving, not finding. Right As she's thinking about these things, as she begins to drift off into sleep and dream about these things, what does she think? He's not here. Right? I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. It's almost as if she, she's saying, I, I wake up and he's not there. And I, he should be here and I don't know where he's gone. And so she does what you normally have happen in these kinds of dreams or ideas. She sets out to go looking for him. That's part of why I think this is a dream. I mean, to wander out into the streets by yourself late at night, it's no, it was no safer back then than it is now in a certain sense. And it was a lot darker back then. 
right? No lights in the, in the town. So to go wandering around is to be wandering around in the darkness. But it's an urgent search, right? I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but I found him not. Um, there's a diligence to this search, an urgency. Um, the urgency is, is built in because of just how much she loves him. This is the one whom my soul loves. I have to find him. Uh, that's the search that's going on. There's this determination on her part to find him. Just as he was urgent in chapter 2, t- telling her, come out, come with me, and enjoy this spring day. Let us go out together. She's now urgent and going to find him. Um, all of that language is really strong. I will rise now and go out in the city. I will seek him whom my soul loves. There's an, there's an urgency, a pressing nature to this, but all of it is frustrating. She's diligent, she's searching, but she can't find him. And eventually she's found by the watchmen of the city uh, who are sort of like the police or the military guard that were on patrol in the house at not, in the town at night. They would be out looking for security threats. If anyone knows where he is, these will be the people that know. They're the ones out patrolling the city. And so she asks them, have you seen him whom my soul loves? And what's their answer to her? There isn't one. That has something of a dreamlike quality to it too, right? Trying to ask someone for help and not finding it in the dream. Um, Their silence is their answer to her. They can't help her find the one she's looking for. And so what will she do? She sought him, can't find him. She has asked the watchman. They don't know where he is. That puts her search sort of at a crossroads. She can give up and go home, or she can press on. And what does she do? She presses on. And she says in verse 4, Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. Just when it seems that the frustrating search will never yield the result she's hoping for, it's almost as if she turns a corner and there he is. Um, and given the way she sought him and the urgency with which she sought him and the, and, the, and the devotion she shows to him as the one whom her soul loves, it shouldn't be any surprise what she does when she finds him. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Perfect Mother's Day text, right? Um, This is is the story. This is the the search that goes on, and she searches and searches and can't find him. And finally she does find him and goes home. And it's, it's that picture of them going home as husband and wife and being together. This is exactly what she's been longing for. This is what she's been searching for. This is the desire of her heart. And so she finally, they go home together, and they're together. And... The end, happily ever after, roll the credits. Until the next night, when she has the dream again. And he's gone again. And she has to search for him again. That's the kind of frustrating quality to this search. That even when she finds him and won't let him go, 
She has to go seeking him again. They're not yet together. Uh, the, the frustrating search for what she's longing for with her husband-to-be is not yet here. It, it's, the, it's the frustrating repeat that she's on prior to marriage. And that's why I think we get the final statement in the text that we get. Um, what is the final statement on all of this that she makes in verse 5? Which should sound familiar to us because she's repeating what she said in chapter 2, verse 7. Um, what does she say? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The passage is all about intense desire fueling this exhaustive search, the quest for intimacy between husband and wife. And it teaches us something about the elusiveness of intimacy. And I think that's what brings on that, that warning again in verse 5. I like how one person put it, the poem has a strong cautionary tone. As the conclusion of verse 5 shows, it may be perfectly appropriate for you to conclude that right now you are not yet ready for this kind of search. That is wise. Resist the cultural pressure suggesting that you have to be in a serious relationship right now or you are likely to be on the shelf forever. Not having an engagement ring by the spring of your college graduation year does not mean that you are bound for permanent spinsterhood or bachelorhood. In God's good providence, there is a time and a season for love that is unique to each relationship, and you don't have to rush into it. But when you do, make sure that you are ready to pursue love through to its proper conclusion with due diligence and single-minded focus that it demands. Of course, true love doesn't always wait for a convenient time in your schedule. Its overwhelming power can break in upon you at any time, but you don't need to keep poking it with a stick, trying to make love happen when the time is really not right. And once again, we're reminded it's a serious and powerful thing. It's a costly thing to pursue love. And again, the, the, the wise woman here, the wise bride-to-be is warning the other women, don't be willing to go down this road unless you're really ready to commit. Right? Because this is a commitment she's making. This is a diligence she's willing to show. This is a cost that she's willing to pay. And it has a lot of wisdom to convey, doesn't it, about love. First of all, it teaches us the truth that love can be painful and frustrating, particularly in marriage. Part of the reason we as a church try to do premarital counseling with couples that are contemplating marriage is to try to get this point across before the marriage starts. To try to remind people that love at times will be painful, at times it will be frustrating. So especially when you just first get married, don't be surprised when that happens. Be ready for that to happen and deal with it the way God wants you to deal with it to try to extend grace to each other, and when there's a need for forgiveness, to seek forgiveness, and when it's sought from you, to offer it in a God-honoring way. Because we don't want couples who are all about, you know, all about happiness and love and looking forward to marriage, and then they get into it, and they face the realities of it, to think, oh no, something's going completely wrong. 
Um, we're Calvinists after all. It's going to be painful. It's going to be frustrating, right? No, but we, we want to be realistic about it because we're sinners, right? Whether it's the family, whether it's the household of God, however you want to extend it to relationships that you're a part of, it's costly to be in a relationship with other people because we're sinners and they're sinners. And there are going to be things that happen that are frustrating and painful, And the idea that it's all ecstasy or that will always be happiness is not realistic. As another commentator said, the path of true love never did run smooth. There is a place for pain in every true relationship. The pain that gives one the opportunity to grow in love and bear one another's burdens. The pain that learns to live with limitations, with frustrated desires, with unfulfilled ambitions. The pain of love may mean a surrender of one's ideals or a realization that one's ideals were misconceived. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about the pain of abuse or other things that are done to to cause pain in a way that doesn't comport with love. We're talking about those pains that come with trying to love one another, Um, the way it's hard to love another sinner. And just like anything else worth learning in life, Um, It's something that needs to be struggled through. Um, Anything worth learning in life is going to take time. No one just falls out of bed a wonderful musician or a wonderful artist or a wonderful intellect or knowing their Bible backwards and forwards. It doesn't just happen. It, It takes work. Anything worth doing is worth working over. And there are going to be frustrations that come with that work. But it's worth the cost. Otherwise, those things we would never experience. Uh, the, the, the joy of knowing them, having worked through what you've worked through to get there. We learn that truth. We see that here. Uh, the pain of separation that produces passionate pursuit in the bride. Uh, pursuing the one that she loves. She's changed a little bit as this book has gone on. Do you remember how she was when we first met her in chapter 1? Where she didn't know where her beloved was and she kind of threw up her hands to say, you know, he's not here and I don't know where he is and I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. Do you remember that? Look back to chapter 1, verse 7. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? I don't know where you are. Where are you? How do I get to you? How do I find you? She's changed. That's not her posture here. I don't know where he is, so I'm going to go find him. And if I can't find them myself, I'm going to ask somebody. And if they can't help me, I'm going to keep going. Um, She's learning something. Wisdom is forming her and shaping her in this way. uh, Holding her up to us as an example to follow. To become this woman here who's willing to risk the danger of the city streets and the darkness of the night to find him who her soul loves, to seek him, to find him, to hold on to him, to not forsake him, and to bring him bring him home. Through all of this, love has really put steel in her spine, hasn't it? Uh, She's always been a laudable figure. She's just becoming more laudable as she follows the wisdom 
of love. It's a reminder to us that the search for true love is not for the faint or the lazy. Um, It's going to require effort. Another commentator said, In a fallen world it is not easy to find love, nor to bring love from its first flickering flame to successful consummation in marriage. True intimacy is a hard-won prize that can be attained only after surmounting many obstacles. Um, It's wonderful wisdom for our natural loves. But as we think about marriage as God has designed it, what is marriage always meant to point us towards and to teach us? At its best, it's it's pointing us and teaching us something about how God loves his bride and how Christ loves his bride and how his bride is to love him. We've already said this is wisdom literature for natural loves. It's not, strictly speaking, typology that the bride is for the church and the, the husband is for Christ. But as we think about the natural relationship of husband and wife and the glories of it set forth here, it points us to something about how Christ's church is to love him, how Christ's church is to seek him. It's a reminder that that kind of love is also not for the faint or the lazy, that there is a cost that's paid in following Christ, and that as his bride, what is the calling of the church? That it's not for the faint or the lazy, but we are to show this kind of passionate, risky, single-minded pursuit in seeking the Lord, that we are dogged till we find him in our search, and when we find him, we won't let him go until we're safely home. Isn't that what we can learn as a church from this text about the fierce love that we are to have for our God? Knowing that that search will not be frustrating because we have a God who wants us to seek him. Right, that was the good news of the gospel that Paul brought in Acts chapter 17 when he talked about People, He said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Feel their way toward him. That sounds like searching in the dark, doesn't it? Where you can't see so you feel your way toward him. And Paul says that's what the Lord wants. He wants the people who live in his world, who see the testimony to who he is, to seek him and to feel for him and to find him. That's the good news that we have a God who wants us to seek him. The better news that Paul goes on to share is that he's not far away. This woman has to go out all over the place looking for him. The good news of the gospel is we have a God who's not far away. Paul goes on in, in the next verse in Acts 17, 27 and 28 to say he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. The good news is God wants us to seek him. The better news is that he's not far away. And the best news is that the reason we love him the way we love him is because he first loved us. We find ourselves seeking him that way because he sought us first. 
We're going to end our service singing that wonderful hymn about seeking the Lord and recognizing that when we find him, we just found him seeking us. Um, But this is the wonderful thing about our God. That when we come loving the Lord and seeking the Lord, we find the great news that the Lord has loved us. And that we're moved to seek him because he came seeking us. Right, That was the great good news that God brought through His Son in Luke chapter 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That we seek Him only because He came seeking us. He came loving us. And the good news is that through those who seek the Lord through that spirit-wrought devotion will find Him. If you seek the Lord, Deuteronomy 4.29 tells us, you seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. As imperfect, sinful people, love with all of its blessings will always come with frustrations in this life, whether it's in marriage or in family or the church or other relationships. Imperfect love and devotion waxes hot and it wanes cold. It has a lot of difficulties, sometimes despite our best efforts, we fail at it. Sometimes our worst failures are exposed and we're the cause of pain and difficulty. And that's why as this redirects us to Christ and the way he loves his church, it's a wonderful reminder to us that married or single, we find perfect and ultimate love in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that his healing power gives hope for our natural loves. That he has the limitless power to repair and to redeem the natural loves of this life. And he promises us a love that never fails. That is everlasting and enduring. So let's endeavor to follow the wisdom we see of the bride here. And as the bride of Christ, seek our Lord with full-hearted, single-minded love and devotion, the kind of love that's willing to pay the cost and to brave any risk to take hold of and find our blessed Savior, knowing that those who love Him and seek Him will find Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for, once again, teaching us wisdom on how to love and giving us such a wonderful song to love in your word. We pray that we would heed the wisdom that's found here, that we would recognize this truth and apply it to our lives, and that through this wisdom for natural love, we would also see something of the supernatural love with which we've been loved by Christ. And may it encourage us as the church, as the bride of Christ, to seek him, knowing that we will find him. Hear us and help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.